welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Today's guest is Daniel Hutchinson, who is the co-winner of the Howard Award for the best article in the previous two years. Daniel won this in 2012 for his article on Camp Opelika and the POW experience during World War II. Daniel, tell me about the article and tell all of us what prompted you to write it, what it's about. Give us a synopsis. Sure. I became interested in Camp Opelika's story when I began research at the University of Alabama at Birmingham on the German prisoner of war experience in Alabama during World War II. Besides Camp Opelika, there were several other large POW camps in western Alabama in Aliceville, at Fort McClellan near Anniston, and Fort Rucker near Dothan, and not much had been written about Camp Opelika. It was acknowledged to be a significant camp with about 3,000 prisoners of war held there. And the fact that not much had been written about it was one of the reasons that I was interested in further telling its pretty interesting and distinct story that ranges not just near Opelika, but in North Africa and the Soviet Union and places besides. That It's sort of a microcosm of all the drama that goes on in the world during World War II. That's an extraordinarily interesting story. Can you give us a synopsis of the article for those who haven't had a chance to read it yet? Sure, absolutely. The article explores conditions for prisoners at Camp Opelika during World War II. It examines the elements of what daily life was like, and that daily life in the camp was of fairly high standard. Many POWs during World War II suffer starvation and brutality and a very precarious health situation, but at Camp Opelika, the prisoners experienced a high standard of treatment. In their own words, they considered themselves the most fortunate of prisoners. They could have ended up in all sorts of very dangerous situations, and yet in Alabama, they endured a high quality of life. That said, there were some difficulties at Camp Opelika, particularly involving political strife within the camp amongst Germans over the issues of Nazi political influence and amongst non-German prisoners in the camp who had been conscripted into the German military and forced to serve. I look at those issues, too, and how they play out and how the American authorities responded to these issues, most notably through the creation of a political re-education program to try to strip away the influence of Nazism within the camps and the areas where the re-education program had success and its shortcomings as well. And then I close the article sort of examining what happens to Camp Opelika when the war is over and what happens to the prisoners once they return home and some thoughts I have on the legacies of Camp Opelika's experience, both for the prisoners of that camp and what it has to say at large for World War II and for America's wars in the 21st century. Let me ask you a couple of questions about the article itself. Now, you talked about re-education of the Nazis. There was a difference between the Nazis and the German Wehrmacht, correct? That's correct. The prisoners held at Camp Opelika and the rest of the camps in the United States, over the 500 camps established in the United States, came from a wide variety of political and social backgrounds. They were by no means of the same stripe or same political beliefs. Indeed, the United States, when it could identify those that were very ardent Nazis, tried to 
isolate and separate them from the other prisoners as a means of limiting any sort of political damage or chicanery that could happen in the camps. That said, there was a sense that even amongst the prisoners that weren't identified as strong proponents of Nazism, that there was a tendency within the camps to lean towards National Socialism and lean towards the German war effort. And across the country, there were incidents where prisoners that were deemed not cooperative with Nazism, or at least deemed too cooperative with the Americans as collaborators, were sometimes killed by other prisoners in vigilante court hearings. And a couple incidences of murder across the United States of prisoners prompted the United States to deal with what it perceived as a, an ideological problem in the camps, that Nazism was a problem and that the prisoners needed to be exposed to the benefits of a democratic political culture. And that, and that was at the heart of what the re-education program was all about. Now, there were cultural programs going on at the same time, correct? Very much so. In the camps, the American authorities provided a real range of activities to allow the prisoners to have some way to spend their many hours of captivity over their years in Alabama and elsewhere. There were theater programs. There were an extensive sports programs. There were artistic competitions. Newspapers were published by the prisoners. There were university programs and school programs and correspondence programs that allowed young German prisoners to be able to keep up with their education even in the midst of the war. And American universities, even Auburn University at the time, Alabama Polytechnic University, participated in these programs to allow the prisoners to make some use of their time in captivity, which in comparison to other prisoner of war experiences throughout the war, just really remarkable. You're saying that Auburn University provided classes for prisoners at Camp Opelika? Through correspondence courses. No prisoners were in the campus uh, itself, um, but they could take correspondence courses, and quite a few did. There's some correspondence with Auburn University and uh, University of Alabama and, and universities across the country to try to set up these correspondence courses so they could get some sort of credit. And some German universities actually accepted these credits and helped pave the way for future careers in law and medicine, clergy, and other professions. Now, you had said, too, that there were non-German prisoners in Camp Opelika. Can you elaborate on that? Certainly. As the German military spread out across Europe and beyond, it experienced some significant manpower problems as the war continued, and non-German prisoners from local areas would be conscripted within the German military. When the German military forces would surrender or be captured by Allied forces, these non-Germans would be thrown into the same camps as the regular German forces. And in Camp Ampelika in particular, there were two interesting groups of non-Germans that seemed to get a lot of attention and seemed to be distinct. The largest group was a collection of about 70 citizens from North Africa, probably from Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, maybe Libya. We're not real sure. The archival evidence just indicates that they're all Arabs from North Africa. Within the camp itself, these Arab prisoners were kept segregated away from the Germans. They didn't get along at all. There seems to be evidence of some raucous interactions between the two groups, and eventually they are moved out of Camp Opelika to other camps. The other group of non-Germans that are held there is smaller, but perhaps more interesting. They're a group of Soviet citizens who were captured on the Eastern Front during World War II through sort of a remarkable odyssey, travel from European Russia across Europe to North Africa, then across the Atlantic to the United States, and then were transported from the West Coast to Vladivostok, traveling then across the entirety of Russia. It's sort of this insane circumnavigation of the world under the worst circumstances imaginable. 
the evidence of these, the experience of these Soviet prisoners in Camp Opelika comes from this remarkable letter addressed from a prisoner to none other than Joseph Stalin. In this letter, he is requesting that Stalin facilitate the repatriation of he and other Soviet prisoners from Alabama back to the Soviet Union so they can return to the Red Army and fight again against fascism. That's a really remarkable document. When you go through the archival collections, it just jumps out at you because the rest of them are from German prisoners writing home to their families. This is something that was very unexpected when I came across it the first time. Do you have any idea what happened to this particular prisoner? Not really, but there seems to be, in all probability, one of three options that might have occurred. The last I'm able to track him down, he gets moved to a POW camp in Texas. From all likelihood, he probably departed the United States from San Francisco or from another West Coast port to head to the Soviet Union. And usually what happened to these prisoners is they would either be readmitted into the Red Army, but in a probationary battalion or a penal battalion. The fact that these men ended up in the German military wearing a German uniform was often seen as a capital crime against the state. And the very fact that they surrendered and were captured in the first place was deemed a criminal act by Stalin in 1941 when the war was going so badly for the Soviets and they needed every man they could get at the front. Life in these penal battalions is very dangerous. They are often put on the front lines in very dangerous situations. Survival could be very grim. The second option that is possible is being sentenced to the gulag essentially being placed in a prison camp, one of the extensive systems of camps that existed in the Soviet Union. Millions of Soviet citizens who endured this sort of situation found themselves in these camps. And I think the third and most frightening option that existed, that simple execution by the Soviet state, probably wouldn't have applied to him. That was usually applied to officers who were captured and then repatriated. But it's nonetheless a distinct possibility. Those are the three options I find most likely. There were prisoners of war who would be readmitted to Soviet society without penalty, but it was unusual, and these men had a very difficult road during the war and afterwards. The same logic did not apply to German or Italian prisoners who were repatriated. German and Italian prisoners who had fought for their homelands were, for the most part, welcomed back as men who had sacrificed for their countries. The situation they faced could still be difficult and precarious. German prisoners arriving back to their homeland after World War II returned to cities that had been bombed out, civilian populations evacuated and scattered. Many of these prisoners returned to find their homes destroyed, their families scattered or dead. And the readjustment process of being reintegrated into society after being a prisoner in a foreign country for several years was a significant social problem that millions of German families had to deal with over the post-war period. But they did not face the same sort of political and social stigma that Soviet prisoners did when they returned to their homes. How was Opelika similar and different from other POW camps both in Alabama and outside of Alabama? Camp Opelika shares much more in common with camps in Alabama and in other states than it has distinctions and differences, but those distinctions that do exist are notable. In terms of commonalities, Opelika shares in terms of the standard of living is the most important element. The standard of living in the camps for prisoners was generally quite high by contemporary standards, certainly, and even by standards today. Prisoners ate well, had a variety of leisure activities to keep them occupied during their years of captivity. They had opportunities to leave the camp and actually work alongside locals in terms of farming and agriculture work. So the standard of living is perhaps the most important commonality. In terms of size, it's roughly similar. It had about 3,000 prisoners there. That is a, a pretty reasonable and usual range for a prisoner of war camp, especially in the South during World War II. 
the distinctions that sort of set it apart are, again, the presence of a sizable group of non-German POWs within its ranks. Um, it's not completely unique. There are other camps that have this experience, but Camp Opelikas does have sort of a unique spin on things. The other thing that makes Camp Opelika distinct is the way the re-education program developed and what impact that it had. Camp Opelika provides us a really interesting way to understand the re-education process from the ground up. Many previous studies of this experience are more of a national administrative look at how the process worked. From Camp Opelika, you can see how ordinary prisoners reacted to the process of Americans seeking to win a battle of the mind. The work done at Camp Opelika in developing this re-education program later moved on to nearby Fort Benning, Georgia, where the special re-education program called the University of Democracy gained some national attention for creating some innovative ways of collaborating with German prisoners and American teachers to fashion a program that both could come to grips with in a real way. University of Democracy began with the work done by Americans and Germans at Camp Opelika. I think those are the most important similarities. The same standard of living, Germans living well and interacting with Americans and Alabamians, and the distinctions, the presence of non-Germans and this re-education program. What sources did you use to get at this view? The most important sources for this article came from the National Archives 2 in College Park, Maryland. At the National Archives, the records of the Provost Marshal General's Office, the Office for Military Police who ran the camps, that's where the primary sources for conditions in life for the camp. That's a huge source for any sort of scholarship on this topic. Another source that also comes from the National Archives comes from the State Department. The State Department negotiated the inspection of these camps for the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA, and for the International Red Cross. They inspected these camps to make sure that conditions were humane and reported these conditions back to Germany. Their reports form a great source for daily life and conditions for the camps. Also, too, in the State Department records are censored letters from prisoners at Camp Opelika, letters that were both complimentary of conditions there at Camp Opelika and used more or less for propaganda purposes during the war, and censored letters that were not released to the public that had some critiques on conditions at Camp Opelika. The, the critiques are real, especially during Camp Opelika's beginnings when the administrative and logistical efforts were still getting on their feet. German prisoners complained about lack of leisure activities and lack of cigarettes and lack of some hygienic products, and they especially did not like Alabama during June and July. But for the most part, their letters had complaints that were relatively minor in the comparative scheme of things. Why did you write about Camp Opelika? Is this part of a bigger project? It is part of a bigger project. This project started off as my master's thesis at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, in 2005. The historiography regarding the subject had not really addressed Camp Opelika in any depth. Alabama's other POW camps have very important stories to tell as well, and had been told in one sense, but I wanted to address Camp Opelika in particular. Camp Opelika's experience and the rest of the German POW experience in Alabama is part of a book-length project that I'm seeking to complete right now, addressing the totality of the POW experience in Alabama and its meaning for the state and for these prisoners and for America's experience as a whole during World War II. Have you gotten any nibbles yet on a potential publisher? I have. I have spoken with uh, two presses. And as the manuscript comes to completion, we'll see how it goes. Well, congratulations on that, and good luck with it. Daniel, tell us where you are now. 
Sure. I am an assistant professor of history at Belmont Abbey College. Belmont Abbey College is a small liberal arts college located just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. It's run by a Catholic order of Benedictine monks. It's a very pleasant place to be and starting my second year here as an assistant professor. Well, congratulations on that also, and I hope that your publication of this article, as well as potential publication of your book, serves you well in that capacity. <laughs> Thank you. I'm hoping that as well. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking with us. This is a conversation with Daniel Hutchison, who is the co-winner of the 2012 Alabama Historical Association Milo B. Howard Award for his article concerning Camp Opelika, published in the Alabama Review. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at city stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.